Mark chapter 6. As we continue to journey through this incredible testimony, this letter or treatise from this writer identifying himself or by others as Mark, but one who was either a, a first century witness of these events or within proximity. And his testimony of who Jesus is and as the king of kings and the upside down kingdom that he brings is what he is trying to proclaim really on every page of this letter. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. We read it in its entirety last week, so I won't do that again. If you missed it, you can scan it. It is likely the most well-known miraculous sign of Jesus, perhaps simply in its magnitude, but also in its repetitive storytelling throughout the gospel. It's the only one that's taught in every one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. We focused on the center of this passage last week, and today I want to move us maybe into the margin a little bit. But even in that, we see that Jesus is Lord of all, is concerned with all of life, and there's so much to be gleaned from the edges. The margins are vitally important for Jesus. But in case you missed last week, the center of this passage, its primary message, is almost synonymous with gospel, with the good news. And just from a plain read of Jesus multiplying these few fish and loaves abundantly, superfluously, unnecessarily, that there were baskets full left over after everyone ate and was satisfied, verse 42. This reveals the heart of God and the ministry of the kingdom through Jesus. God gives abundantly, superfluously. He provides again and again. This is good news. This is good news to the world, to the weak and the poor, the hungry and the needy. So that's the very plain, obvious reason, the depth of the passage, the sign of it, what it reveals in fullness and wholeness can go so much deeper. And we just started pressing in. In John chapter 6, Jesus commentates on the very reason for this sign, that he himself is the bread of life, that Jesus fulfills and satisfies all things. For all who are hungry and unsatisfied, Jesus offers life and life to the full. We must stop pursuing fulfillment and satisfaction in earthly things, which can never or only temporarily satisfy, but we must believe and receive in the one who fills to full, the bread of life. That's the central message. That's the gospel. God gives abundantly, superfluously, surprisingly, and he is not stingy. In fact, by his very nature, it's almost as if he can do no other. Just consider a few things, what we know from nature and from the story of God revealed. The world that he created has multiplication embedded within it. Just think of the latency of a forest within a single cone. We look at our western great red cedars, probably the most massive trees we have in the forest, and the cone that is one of the smallest of all of the coniferous trees. And within that is not just the potential for a new cedar, but ultimately with time, a forest. The latent potential of an orchard within an apple. The 30, 60, and 100 fold beyond what was sown in a single seed through a field, that multiplication 
nature through root systems and production. The very first instruction that God gave to humanity was be fruitful and multiply. Again and again, we'll see it throughout the story, but even in nature, as we're presently learning, physicists believe the universe itself is continuously expanding, though they would also probably describe it as infinite. But even more rapidly is it expanding, if that were even possible. It just completely stretches our capacities to understand the magnitude of this place that we live in. We considered last week from God's story, the manna in the story of forming the nation of Israel in the wilderness, and God fed them every day with this unknown substance, this unknown bread from heaven. And he gave such an abundance that every person could have gathered two to three times as much as what they actually needed that day. And then he told them not to, to restrict themselves, to limit themselves and trust him for the bread today and there would be more for tomorrow. Why not just provide less? Why did God provide in abundance a superfluous provision? And then we see in the story continually God's desire to bring Israel into a land of abundance, a land described in poetic terms as flowing with milk and honey in abundance, even though God warned them that this might not go well for them as they had all that they needed. And we pressed into that some last week. Then in the story of Jesus, Jesus does the same kingdom kind of abundance in his provision. In his very first sign recorded in John chapter 2, after an entire wedding ceremony where everyone had their fill of food and drink, Jesus provides more. And not just a little more wine, water to wine, but estimates of 150 to 180 gallons of the best wine that anyone had ever tasted. And he told the servants to fill up these ceremonial jars used for washing and baptisms up to the brim, which just indicates that as that wine was trying to be ladled out, it would slosh over the edges and be wasted ultimately upon the ground. Why the abundance? Why so much? And then here in Mark 6, not only is everyone eat and satisfied, there are baskets full when food was scarce and often 80% of one's income went just to feed their household. So certainly you, got, you have to imagine as bread continues to come and fish continues to come, you're loading up whatever bag or cloak you can to take home. If it's free and it's abundant and yet there was still leftovers. Why so much? It's as if God can do no other, indicating his kingdom nature and what he intends for us to both receive as his children, to understand as his posture towards us, and then to extend into the places he has called us in that kind of nature and generosity. So before we move into a marginal theme, which I think is also vital and important for us, let's be reminded again and cling to the reality that our God, your God, your Father, loves you deeply and desires to give good gifts to you. This is his nature and desire. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 13, verse 9. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil... 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you? Surprisingly, he says, will give to you the Holy Spirit to those who ask. On this Father's Day, you may have a great earthly father or not, but all of us have an amazing, generous father who desires to give and give abundantly. Ask and receive this morning. We may have many needs. They may be significant, maybe urgent, certainly legitimate, and God cares about every one of them. But our need above all is him, the divine spirit, his spirit in us, us in him. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all of the worries of life, all of the concerns, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, food, clothing, shelter, the basic needs that God knows that you need and desires to provide for you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things will be added unto you. The perspective and the posture of the kingdom, a simple prayer, God, we confess where we've been trying to fill our lives and be satisfied by earthly things. And yet you love to give abundantly. It's your nature and your character. And we long to be satisfied by you, God, you the giver, not the gifts you give, but help us receive with open hands. Let's move into the margins of this story and find the giver and an incredible gift. Ironically, our culture seems to know very little about margins. In fact, in some ways, you might say they abhor Margins. One of the side effects of the theme we looked at last week of our consumeristic culture is busyness. And we need to deal with it because it's killing us. It is sucking the life out of us. And I'm not sure a year of pause has really changed that because it's a, it's a character, attitude, heart level change and transformation followed by rhythms that can be applied and disciplined into our lives. But the never-ending, unsatiated pursuit of more leads to this frenetic life. The need to advance, to advance your career, to advance your status or reputation, to advance your children, to advance your knowledge, or simply the fear of missing out, the fear of missing that experience, that understanding, that relationship all of this leads to overloaded schedules and responsibilities. Not only are we one of the most affluent societies that has ever lived across history, we are one of the busiest. And we tend to wear busyness as a badge, as if anyone was actually impressed by it, as, as if we were. And to prove the point, what is your reflex response to the question, so how was your weekend? So how are you doing? It's busy, isn't it? How was your weekend? It was busy. It was full. Let me tell you about it. And then no one is impressed by that, are they? And neither are we. And yet we seem to fall into this pattern and this habit of fullness and busyness. And I'm trying to change my language that I would say that, that schedules and life is full and full of opportunity. Busyness almost implies that there is no importance to the things we're doing and we have no control over our schedules. Imagine if the response to how is your weekend was what it should be. Can you imagine a world where that response was, was this? Oh, it was so restful and restorative. Let me tell you about it. 
and how I am so charged up for another week. Can you imagine that world? Is that even possible with the demands that seem to be upon us from our jobs, from society and culture at large? For you that are parents of young children especially, or of teenagers, and sometimes of aging parents yourself where there's care given in both directions, is it even possible to have a weekend full of rest and restoration and recharging? Or if not the weekend, a rhythm where that takes place regularly, and that's our response. Jesus says yes, and he says it is vital. Jesus understands fully, demands upon our life, external pressures, seemingly endless need, with no end in sight, with no rest in sight. Jesus knows it and also knows the way out and invites us into that withdrawing to rest, to recover, to restore. He knows what it is to draw deeper on the strength and power of another in order to press in in those times of great need and at other times to withdraw and rest. This may be a peripheral point to the story, but I think it is also good news that Jesus longs to draw us away with himself to a desolate place, a remote, a removed from distractions type place. The Greek word is the eremon. We've seen it before in this study. The eremon, the wilderness, the desolate place for rest and for renewal. I hope that sounds like good news, even if it doesn't seem like possibility for you. Remember the disciples, as we enter this story, have just come off an incredibly demanding, draining, wearying time of ministry, traveling around from town to town, often being rejected and denied, not having any provisions, needing to, needing to rely on the generosity of others unknown to them before they step foot in the town to receive them, to feed them, to house them. Then when God's power and authority is at work in and through them to heal and to deliver people, more and more need comes their way. So that, that's been their previous weeks or months. We're not told the exact timeline in the story. They return to Jesus now, and this is where we pick up this part of the story in Mark 6.30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told, told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. The pressures upon them, the endless stream of people to help and minister to was so much that they didn't even have a time to pause for a meal. That doesn't mean that they didn't pause and eat some bread and some fish. It means in their rhythm of rest and in that culture, gathering around, reclining around a table, maybe for some hours in the evening to restore, to fellowship, to, they didn't have time for that. There was no rhythm, that rhythm had been lost and broken. Even the Sabbath rhythm was difficult for them as they would often spend the Sabbath on the road traveling, which was a different kind of rest, but was not rest. And obviously Jesus was accused of not obeying the Sabbath because he was on the move. Jesus knows what it is to have that kind of demand, to see it within his followers. And maybe you can relate even now. Are you coming out of a season or in one of weariness, of demands, of drain, of no end in sight? How can you possibly withdraw and rest when this need still remains? Whether from children or aging parents or work 
or community or commitments you gave when that seemed easy, but now to follow through seems too heavy to carry. Can you resonate? Can you experience? Jesus sees that. He knows it. And if your feeling is, I cannot withdraw, I cannot withdraw like, like this for days perhaps of just rest and solitude to the Eremon. There's, there's too many needs. Too many people are depending upon me. Take heart. Jesus withdrew. No one had more demands upon them with less time to do it than Jesus. For Jesus to withdraw at this point from the thousands who were drawing near to him, for Jesus to remove himself meant the sick continued to suffer, that some would even die while Jesus was withdrawn and in prayer and in rest. And yet he withdrew. I think Jesus knew that this was vital as a rhythm. He craved the Eremon. It's where he met with God, his father. It's where he rested and was restored. And the only way we can build that kind of a rhythm into our life is through trust. To have a trust that there's another who has greater authority and control and investment into the world than we do. We can too highly view our own abilities to make a difference, even in the things we've specifically been called to. In illustration from nature, how can we possibly get rest and renewal that we need? And this one is biblical, all the way back from Exodus chapter 23. So nearly 3,000 years ago, and scientists and agriculturalists have proven this to be true. It's called fallowing. To let a field lay fallow, dormant, unplanted, untilled for a year. In the rhythm of, of Israel, it was after every six years of planting to let a field lay fallow. Some crops would just naturally grow from previous seed and reproduction, and that was also to be used for the poor and the needy in the community to come and to glean. There would be no other uh, general harvest for production and saving. And whether it's the exact six-year or seven-year mark, there's different science out there. But to leave a field fallow, because what, what crops do year after year is they draw from the nutrients within the soil. They draw micronutrients like carbon and nitrogen and organic matter, and those get slowly depleted year over year. And leaving a field fallow, untilled, unplanted with a full crop for a year will restore those elements through the courses of nature. Maybe not to full, but enough that it's evident that in the years coming after that fallowness, the, the production of the crop is increased more than if it had, had not laid fallow. But it may seem out of sync. I mean, look how much we can still produce because the field will continue to produce. But to let a field lay empty in the springtime What's happening? Where's the growth? Where's the life? We can't afford that. It's counterintuitive, but the year of rest is vital. Specifically, organic matter and microorganisms start to flourish and increase. Life, vibrancy comes back to the earth. It also is proven to increase saturation of the soil, water retention, drought resistance. So by this very model in nature and illustration, if that could be applied to our own lives of rest and rhythm, which is a storyline throughout Scripture, that we need to be restored for life to be renewed. 
for drought tolerance, so to speak. But many farmers today simply pump the soil with new fertilizers and artificial sources of organic matter to bypass the fallow year, if that's not an oxymoron, artificial sources of organic matter, or they rotate the crops. Instead of leaving one field empty for fallowness, they change what they're doing. Change it up, do something new, and, and the different kinds of crops will draw different nutrients. In all of that, I probably need some correction from our farmers in the room. So please ping me or preach next Sunday and tell me where I'm way off base. But I found that absolutely fascinating to at least press into the idea, concept, the present-day concept of, of fallowing and rest, knowing it's an ancient one given by God to Israel, I believe, as a sign of what it is to be restored and renewed within us. Do you feel that? Do you feel the inability to rest, to lay fallow for any length of time. Instead, we, we, we pump our lives full of other substances and sources, other fertilizers to sustain us or to numb us, whether they're actually substance or, or other things like food or alcohol or pornography or binging Netflix or online shopping or social media, to name a few. These external substances just to keep going to make it through another day. Others of us think it's a little healthier to turn and escape to a new relationship, a new hobby, a new education. But ultimately, in doing something new, like rotating crops, but not resting, we are fooling ourselves into believing that we are being renewed and that life is coming back to us. And if you know what it is to sleep for a long time and feel tired, whether all night or a weekend, and still have no rest, or to plan an awesome vacation and come back more tired than when you left. Then you start to know the rhythms that are not restorative. Jesus knows our weariness and limitations. He lived it. He was tempted in every way as we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, which means Jesus was tempted also to pump in external sources of pleasure and relief that could be temporary quick fixes to keep going in ministry. Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are and yet resisted knowing the rhythms of true restoration and health. He knows our weariness and invites us away with him to a desolate place, the wilderness, the Eremon. Is that where God is? Some over the ages have believed, yes, we must remove ourselves so completely from the world, air quotes, to find God because that's where he dwells in the margin places in the desert places. It does seem like a storyline throughout Scripture. The people that meet with God in the wilderness removed from Abraham to Jacob to Moses to David to Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jesus, and Paul had incredible divine encounters completely isolated and removed into the Eremon. It's not that that's where God is, but it's often the only places that we can actually hear his voice, to be removed from the noise, the distractions, and the demands that are upon us, whether self-imposed or external. We can't always withdraw completely like these disciples were attempting to through Jesus' invitation. It's not always the time. We know that. But we must look for rhythms and disciplines to carve out the Eremon, even daily, 
weekly, monthly, yearly, and more, rhythmically. That discipline is vital. Jesus carved out the Aramon daily. He was often up before the sunrise to pray and to commune with his Father, removed from the distractions. I've taken it as, as a discipline intentionally to hashtag win the day, to get up before the light. Oh, that's very difficult this time of year, so I think there's grace for that. But a lot of the other year is actually pretty easy to do. Normally, our alarm goes off somewhere, well, thankfully, on these days, around 6 o'clock. It used to be 5. And to have the first voice into my life be the Father's voice, whether through his scripture or through a posture of prayer and meditation and silence, before any other voice, before looking at the phone, maybe other than the clock, and bringing in any other voice to hear his, whether 10 minutes and oftentimes an hour or more, that's an Eremon space. Whether meditating leading to journaling or simply prayer, simply contemplation or reading whole chapters of scripture or working on memorization, it's not about the what. It's about the discipline of the how in so many ways. Carve out that Eremon to commune with God. I'm restored in that place. I'm renewed. I'm prepared for the day. I also walk every day. I think I can say that now, 171 days in. I walk every day. I love walking with others and encouraging and praying, but this is a, a solo, solitude walk to commune with God slowly. That's an Eremon space. And I love communing and hearing from God in that space. These are vital rhythms on a daily basis. We also need weekly and monthly and even yearly annual rhythms of Eremon. Those are no replacement to getting away for two to three days. The modern equivalent to Jesus saying, withdraw with me to this desolate place might be a cabin in the woods with no Wi-Fi or cell phone gasp, hopefully by some water to commune with God, to listen, to pray, to be in his creation. And I get to do this hopefully a couple times a year, thanks to the support and sending of my wife, my kids, the elders, knowing this is a vital restorative rhythm. And I hear God in that desolate place, whether it be a condo or a cabin or a tent, it does not matter. But to hear from God in prayer, in journaling, in meditation, lots of reading, lots of writing, lots of slow, slowness and rhythm is vital. What does that Eremon space look like for you? How can you carve that out today, this week, plan for it in the month or the year ahead? Jesus knows that we need these margins. He experienced it. He sees our weariness as he did for his disciples that day, and he invites us away with him. Come away with me. Just when the demands of life and ministry were at their highest, withdraw from me. Now, if you read the rest of the story and you hear it, you say, so what happens when we make our best plans to rest, to draw away, and those demands chase us down? You see the story, don't you? They came to the shore and the word spread and the crowds had followed them around the lake and were there waiting for them. Hey, I think they're headed here. Let's get there. And by the time they, they landed, 5,000 or more people had assembled. Do you ever feel that? You're about to withdraw. You're about to rest. And the phone rings. It's work, emergency. Your text buzzes. It's family, crisis. Your email or social media is blowing up, conflict. How do you withdraw and get rest 
when there's others in significant need, real need. Some of it's exaggerated, we know, but real need. These were real needy, demanding people. Jesus pressed in. We'll see that next week. But I wanted to leave us today with the desire that God and Jesus have to draw us away into the Eremon and to commune with him. If you feel there's no way you can carve that out and get that rest, Jesus says there is a way and it is vital for you. And he draws us into that space. We must cultivate a listening ear and heart. The heart level is because we must trust in order to rest. Trust that another who cares more deeply than we ever could will carry what we cannot carry probably in the first place and invite us back into the work with hopefully renewed strength and rest and energy. At times we will be led to press in in the strength of another. And we'll see that some next week, Deo Valente. How will we carve out marginal spaces, the Eremons, before the sunrise, perhaps, in the solitude path of life, or on a weekly or monthly or yearly rhythm or all of the above? Perhaps as we pray in these few moments and then sing our prayers, that we could pray, would you join me in praying this, that this would be an Eremon-like divine space for the next 20 minutes. God supernaturally remove distractions. We know cars are going to still go by and dogs are going to still pass and bark, but supernaturally in our heart and our mind, would you just remove those things, even our plans for the rest of today to those margins that the center point of these next few moments would be communion with you maybe with one another, your family, as you receive the communion elements, as you hear and let the prayers in song wash over you, or as you lean in and sing them unto your God with us. God, would this space be an Eremon, a holy divine encounter? Speak, God, for we are listening. We desire to hear your voice, receive your spirit, spirit know your will, give us your rest, let us know your peace that surpasses understanding. And God, Father, good Father, would you guard the hearts, the souls, the minds of your people here, these fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, unto your glory and for their divine joy, we pray. Amen.